is it about a massive media empire owned by Rupert Murdoch? No, no, it's not Rupert. It's, it's about uh. Tom Hanks with a beard, uh, being warm and wearing lots of woolen clothing. Actually, it's like they took a slightly different approach with this western. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, not, it, not about a former it, Sunday newspaper, then. Okay, I thought you'd be. Uh, I thought you'd be straight on it. News of the world with uh, with Tom. I know. Hanks. Well, yeah, exactly. Well. Hanks, Western, Greengrass. Yes, you'd think so, but uh, I haven't got around to it yet. The thing about having a baby is, is that the the stuff, it's fine for watching shoddy 80s action films because you don't really have to concentrate too much, but if you really want to watch something quality, you have to pick your moments. Oh, and those moments are like, what, midnight? <laughs> At which point, yes, you just want to be asleep. Um <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I'm intrigued to hear about this. And I, I've I've got a few. Um, a, it's a bit of a usual stuff for me. There's no specific theme, just whatever I fancied watching. But mm. have you got have you got any? Is it for you? Is it a, a series this week, or are you the same, just going with whatever? I did a, it's a small series, only three films, but it's seven <clears> films <throat> in total, and um, yeah, and a small series tucked in there. It's, I can understand um, why I, I can understand why that series did not continue. <laughs> like, I um, <clears throat> I wanted. I know we've briefly spoken about this before, but before we get into into the the, the meat and bones of the podcast, um, I want to talk about Mark Addy briefly because I watched uh, uh well, Faye watched a TV show the other day, um, called I think it's called The White Farm Murders or The White House Murders, and Mark Addy was in it, and I haven't seen him since like. Up, not it wasn't up and under, it was like full Monty and stuff like that. He is he's a large man. He's got he's got bags under his eyes now. But he's really, he's, isn't he? he is really good at playing like a kind of a, a good hearted but burned up cop. Totally fine. It was it was the show fine. We don't talk about TV shows here. We talk about shitty movies. But what I wanted to talk about briefly was Stephen Graham is is in that and he plays a Welsh cop, literally called Taff Jones, right? And Stephen Graham, I don't know where he's from. I know he's English, but he puts he's on a Welsh a, accent. Oh, is he? Do you know? Uh, is it Burton on Scouser? <laughs> oh. I thought he was a Scouser. I'm not sure. I'm not completely sure. Then. But what I found really interesting was um, he he puts on a Welsh accent, and I was watching it with Faye. Both of us are Welsh, obviously, and we were sort of like, "Oh, that's cool. It's nice to see Welsh people being represented in in." on tv and he did a pretty good job he laid it on like slightly thick but that's fine and then afterwards i went online and found out there was actually quite a backlash against it from like welsh newspapers and and welsh people just saying that it was ridiculous and 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 it made me think about i know we've talked about this before why people get so defensive when they hear their accents in film yes yeah oh that's it is it Okay. I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah interesting, film. interesting point. Right, let's move on. No, um, um, it, it kind of, I suppose with me, because I've got such a neutral English accent, it never really comes up for me because I don't, because my accent is the default BBC accent, basically, other, well, I'd probably have to shape up a little bit if I was going to read the news. But point is, yeah, it's like, I think the more regional the accent is, more specific to a place, the more defensive people tend to be about it, perhaps. 
Yeah, because I, I, I found with, with Stephen Grayman that there's a scene where he's playing, it was quite well observed. It's almost like he's got a Welsh friend he's taken the accent from, because specifically from the Welsh Valleys, because there's a scene where he's playing golf with his superior officer. And the superior officer says to him, oh, so how come how come this boy was not loved as much by the parents as the other children? And Stephen Graham says, adopted, see? And I thought that's really well observed. That's exactly how a person, a Welsh, deeply Welsh person would, would say those yeah. words. But no, it just, just made me think about, uh, I remember you saying in the past that Americans aren't as bothered about ropey accents in, in films as the British are. Um, yeah, I, they don't seem to be. But that's just an idle observation I've made online. But I, but it does seem to be the case, and I don't know. Maybe it's because of the geographical spread of the UK versus US. Like in the US, you know, if you lived in Texas or something like that. It's bigger than Britain. You know, you're not really going to hear a wide range of accents probably around immediately around you. In the same way that. In Britain, it's such a tightly packed, you know, island, and there's so many different accents and dialects that we we tend to be quite well. People tend to be quite protective over them, over those sorts of regional identities. Um, yeah, I don't. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's a strange one because you. I think the difference is is that you're looking at his performance and you're looking for looking at it at a, in a positive way insofar as you're looking you're looking for things where it's like aria oh, yeah that is you know that's that's something i would say that's a way i would say it or someone i know would say it so you're looking for the the parts that kind of uh ring true and whereas someone else might look at it and think well that's you know that doesn't sound quite right so therefore the whole performance is nonsense and why didn't they get a, a real welsh person to you know yes yeah, he's from merseyside by the way so and to be fair i mean this, this he played he's he's played um al capone and stuff hasn't he did he uh, do that with a welsh accent as well yes thick thick <laughs> merthyr accent there um but yeah um so i mean he can put on these accents and obviously he's played like cockney english and stuff so anyway i he clearly knows what he's doing I, I i wonder if when he did you know like when he's played 30s 30s gangsters and stuff like that in chicago or whatever that i wonder whether people are nitpicking in the same way or outright yeah, really elderly people from the windy city saying oh that's not how we spoke back in the early 30s when I was four like years it. old, I don't remember anyone speaking like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, it's yeah, it is kind of nonsense. Uh, and I mean, yes, you do hear some bad accents in in movies sometimes. Although, uh, although it, it tends to be, it tends to be maybe there's something about the Brit certain British dialects, certain British accents, which is particularly difficult because. I don't notice like British actors putting on bad American accents far nearly as much as I notice Americans putting on bad English accents. But then that's probably because of my familiarity with English and yeah, your ear will pick it Welsh up straight away. Scottish accents, I suppose. So yeah, you would pick it up straight away. Uh, I just I realised that you sent me you sent me the file for the Arkansas that you did um, 
but have you got it to hand or am I going to have to insert it again? I think you'll have to insert it again. I can't, <laughs> remember, the, I can't remember the journey. I remember it is slightly, it's slightly more straightforward this time. Who is it from? It's three steps. It was Kari Hiroyuki Tagawa to, yeah. what was it? Who was the other person? <laughs> um, who was it? Uh, Charles Bronson. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll insert that. I think that would be a straightforward uh, connection to make, but it was it was okay actually. Oh, cool. Well, I I'll don't think I even had now. to look it up. So yeah, I'll check that in now, uh, so people will hear that now. This is the and moment. I'll set I'll set another one for you at the at the end of at the end of the show. Charles Bronson was in Death Wish with Jeff Goldblum, who was in Independence Day Resurgence with William Fichtner, who's in Pearl Harbor with Carrie Hiroyuki. Chagawa. But Rupert, obviously we've got to we've got to rattle on, so I've got to get through the sponsorship this week, if that's cool, to so make sure the things keep ticking over. Oh and, yeah. Let's keep <clears throat> on. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Bernard Matthews Turkey Emotions. We've given you turkey unicorns, turkey dinosaurs, and turkey jetters. Now we're taking you on a deeper experience with Bernard Matthews Turkey Emotions. Bring fun to your tea time with Turkey Emotions. Reformed Turkey, shaped to represent the drawings found in the many leather-bound journals of our founder, Bernard Matthews. In each pack, there will be an assortment of expressionist emotional shapes rendered in Turkey in breadcrumb form, which represent hearing your parents arguing downstairs as you cry yourself to sleep on Christmas Eve, hiding behind a tree, watching the gardener touch himself near a pond, gasping in forbidden ecstasy as the bracing wind caresses his exposed flesh, Walking in on a maid, catching a rifling through mother's jewellery, her eyes wide with fear as she imagines father's unbridled rage. Gazing at your father's tear-filled eyes as his lower lip trembles with rage when you smash that vase in the hallway. Tearily waving goodbye to the butler, Mr. Tootles, as the train leaves the station for boarding school. Father stood there, unmoving, jaw locked in an unreadable expression. Leaning over to pick up what you think is a sixpence from outside Mrs. Ludlow's bakery, but upon leaning closer, discovering that it's a status quo live album on cassette. And reading a letter from mother as you sit dazed in an opium den in Paris, a letter telling you that father has died, slipping on a dog mess, kicking himself in the face and falling into a well. He took days to die. The passing children thought he was a ghost and threw stones into the well teasing what they believed was a malevolent entity enticing them into the spirit realm. Bernard Matthews Turkey Emotions, available in supermarkets everywhere, except Neto. So, I do like Bernard Matthews Turkey Drummers, so yeah. I'm going I'm I'm to have to pick those up. I'm, the dinosaurs are fun as well, aren't they? I, the, those, uh, the emotions, I mean, they're, I think we can all agree they're pretty, they're pretty universal, really. They're not... <laughs> Yes, I'm too specific or anything. So yeah. Well, as, as I was reading them out, I was thinking, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, the gardener <laughs> touching himself near that specific pond. memory. <laughs> but I'm just trying to. I'm struggling to imagine how ex, ex, sort of emotional expressions would be captured in a physical shape form. Yeah, uh, I can imagine it'd be some sort of Rorschach kind of scenario. <laughs> Oh, like the, so someone would, like, you you know, if you're a child and your mother put the turkey uh, emotions in, when they come out sort of crispy and she'd look at them and it would be a sort of, you could put, stand next to your mother and say, what do you see? Yeah. What memory, what memory is conjured up for you from these turkey shapes? 
Yeah. It would almost be like a kind of magic eye thing. You stare at it long enough and suddenly you get a flashback to chucking stones at a dying man down a well. Yeah, that uh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and, and, of, and of course, Rupert, um, so thanks to Bernard Matthews for that. And uh, I've also, before we leap, leap into the movies, I've got the um, name generator up and working again. Okay. So... Fingers crossed for Marry Me Grandad 2, but again, I'm losing faith in that, so let's just see what rocks up. I'm 35. I'm 35. That, for me... 35. That calls to mind a film possibly starring someone like Martin Sheen, where he's an, an elderly man, but but refuses to believe that time has marched on, and then he'll have some sort of accident or realization, and then the family will come together and say, "See, Dad, you are eighty-seven. You're not. You you might be thirty-five in your mind, but you're an eighty-seven-year-old man in reality." So what I, I this would come to the producers as perhaps a serious kind of. A serious concept um, for a kind of like thoughtful drama, thoughtful family drama. But then it would just be remodelled as a kind of wacky comedy where you can imagine the trailer. It would be like him believing that he's really 35 and going out and doing things that 35 year olds do and wearing their clothes and stuff. Oh, the and like, and like, like trying to seduce like much younger women. Yeah, and it'd be made in like 2004, so it would be quite tasteless as well. It'd be like the height of like that really tasteless comedy um, era, and so he'd just be like leering over younger women, and it'd be hilarious. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound like something I'd watch, to be honest. No. Who do you imagine? Who do you imagine the title role of that film? Well, now you mentioned Martin Sheen, I can't look past it, to be honest. Um, Although whether he'd agree to do that, I'm not sure. He's a little bit more politically minded these days, I think. Um, <laughs> so anyone uh, you can think s- of is just depressing, really, isn't it? Because you think of anyone who'd be the right age and you think, no, God, no. It'd probably be Robert De Niro these days, let's face it. Well, he was in a film, wasn't he, called like Dodgy Grandad or something a few years ago? Yeah, Dirty Grandpa, oh, Bad Grandpa. Yeah. That literally anyway. sounds like something our name generator would spin out. Anyway, yeah. That, so, that literally, uh, yeah. And, and in the trailer for that, it literally had all that stuff. He's going to strip clubs and stuff. It's like, uh, please, God, no. I've, yeah. got six, I've got eight films. So because we've mentioned it, shall I, shall I leap in with News of the World? Yes, please. Yep. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a film that's just rocked up on Netflix, directed by Paul Greengrass and starring... Uh, Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel, who I've never seen before. Um, and Tom Hanks plays Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, who was, used to be a member of the Confederate Army, but now he travels around reading the news um, in the town halls of these small villages to the the populace, just uh, catch up on what's going on in, in the wider world around them. It actually looks like quite a fun job. Um, he comes across Helena Zengel, who plays a girl called, I forget her name, Johanna, who sort of speaks in an Indian dialect, a native Indian dialect, but has Germanic roots and understands 
some German from when she was much younger. She's only about, I think, 11 or 12. And the whole film is effectively a, a road movie uh, of him trying to get this girl back to where he believes her German parents were this town that she's in in her papers um but it's quite clear that she's much more familiar with indian indian affairs and i didn't really know what to expect because i'd never heard of this at all um and i i did quite like it it was a it was quite a nice film and it was never i with tom hanks sometimes it can things can get deeply sentimental in these sorts of films yes. but he is quite a good character in that he's quite hardened from what he's seen but he's a, an, an intrinsically pleasant man so he's whilst he's an older soldier he's very capable he just wants to put that behind him um there was i don't want because i know you're going to watch it i don't want to put too many spoilers in but there was one there was one scene where they're sort of rolling along and the way that they're the way that their relationship sort of blossoms, but how he still keeps a distance because he wants to just do this, do this thing, take it to a family and then move on. And obviously gets dragged further and further into it as they make their travels. There was a scene in it where it kind of, he, you realize how dedicated he is to making sure that this, that he is going to take it home and he's willing to put his life on the line for it. And there's a sequence in the middle of the film where, it's almost like it's thrown in to sort of say, oh, look, he's, you know, he's a re he's everyone's hero. And it, and whilst it was an interesting set piece, it did make me think mm, that that was a really, that was a bit silly and really, mm. really risky. And did that really need to be in? But it, did, it didn't shake it too much. I did. I did enjoy it. And it was just a few moments like that. I thought, mm, you know, it doesn't have to be the All-American hero. It can just be this nice little story. It doesn't need to get bigger than that. But I really liked it. Yeah. Um. Is Paul Greengrass, and obviously he's known for some pretty visceral stuff. I mean, I can't think of anything he's made which hasn't been quite brutal or visceral in some ways. Is but you you call this nice? Is it? I mean, is it recognisably Paul Greengrass? Would you say or? Well, to be honest, I'm just looking at um, his other films. That you said that, and yeah. I think the only other film of his that I've seen is one of the Bourne films, and I right. I can't remember, so I, I've got. I wouldn't really know who to what to compare right. it to. So yeah, I'm not. Um, it's but you not, know it's, his style. I mean, it's quite. He's got quite a kind of cinema verite kind of style, isn't he? Like quite raw, a lot of handheld camera and stuff. I can't imagine that would really suit this period so much. No, well, no. Now that you say that, well, the handheld. It, no, this feels much more cinematic. It's very, right, it's very yeah. rich landscapes. So I wouldn't. I didn't yeah. take that from it. No, it's not like close up. Shaky. Yeah, no, no, it didn't. I wouldn't um, wouldn't say it reminded me of that. Well, in a way, that's even more intriguing because to see Greengrass going for something more classically cinematic. Mm. Does it feel like a film that could be in the cinema? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. It's very, okay. it's very visually pretty, and I really like the score as well. This, I, it was one of those films when it and it felt like it finished, and I thought, was there music in that? Which I think is a really good thing, because it obviously mm. just underscored the emotional sort of subtext, without without it coming honking and saying, yeah. this is how you're meant to feel. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, so it didn't try and, it doesn't try and inform you of what you should be feeling. It's just mm. the pits, isn't it, really? Um, Although it was good. literally a single theremin note for the entire <laughs> film, that I think back. <laughs> a single shrill note yeah. <laughs> its way through the whole film this sounds interesting um it's not quite in keeping with the theme um okay well i'm gonna watch that then news of the world on netflix um 
also on Netflix, The Cable Guy. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Christ, I forgot about that film. Yes. Yes. 1996. So this is quite early in Jim Carrey's career. And since that initial triple whammy in 94, you know, Dumb and Dumber, Mask, Ace Ventura, um, he'd only really done Batman Forever and Ace Ventura 2 after that. So this was kind of his first crack at doing something a bit more serious. Uh, It's directed by Ben Stiller, one of only two films Ben Stiller made in the 1990s. One of the two films he directed, anyway. And I do think that if The Cable Guy had been made even five years later, he, Carrie probably would have turned it down, toned it down. Um, and he, because he is still gurning pretty heavily and contorting his body. Uh, you know, it's it's not like the Truman Show where he's, he's quite downplayed. Um, but this is, yeah, Cable Guy is really seriously dark comedy. Um so Jim Carrey plays the titular cable guy. He is a, a lonely man who was raised on television by neglectful mother. And in adulthood, he struggles to make friends. Um, but he does a job for nice guy, Matthew Broderick, who shows him some kindness. And yeah, Jim catches, uh, latches onto him and after a brief honeymoon period, uh, he starts to get involved in Broderick's life in a more sinister way. Um, and we'll leave it there. But it's it's like Cable Guy. It's like it's it's almost taking the classic '90s character-driven mid-budget thriller and transposing this layer of slapstick comedy on top. And it's not always a comfortable marriage. But but while I, I used to think this was just an, an okay Jim Carrey comedy, but now I see it more as quite a tragic character study because Jim Carrey's character is so messed up, but it is, it's also quite horribly believable because he's, he's lonely because he was never shown attention as a child, which means that in adulthood, he's desperate for intimacy, yet he never learned the skills necessary to obtain intimacy, if you see what I mean. So it's just like he's desperate, but also incompetent at getting what he wants. Uh, And it does go to some quite profound places towards the end, not in a very subtle way, but, you know, um, it's not ever very funny. And some of the set pieces are pretty overstretched, I'd say. There's a scene, if you remember, where they go to this medieval-themed restaurant. Yes. Uh, It's sort of amusing. They start dabbing like sword fights, and then they do jousting, and it goes on for a a long time. It's obviously like a big slapstick uh, sequence, but it does go on a bit. Um, I just remember a scene where a spider goes over his face. Yes. Towards the end when he's like properly losing it and he's just on the phone to Matthew Broderick and he just allows a spider to scuttle across his face as he talks without flinching. And it's and it's clearly a real spider. So, yeah, he wasn't messing about there. Um, I, I think that the film does weigh more heavily toward the darker parts. And I think that does make it more interesting, especially when you consider that this this film was sandwiched between the aforementioned movies. And then after this, it. Um, it was 
he went straight to like liar liar you know which is obviously much more mainstream and broad and it does stand out as an early example of jim carrey showing his dramatic range but as i said i think it wasn't really until truman show that he could really commit to that so it's more of a glimpse than anything uh, obviously day harry five the deadpool was his initial foray into uh, dramatic acting but <laughs> isn't that what you said he just he's a heroin addict who dances to some disco music or something uh he dances to is it guns i want to say guns and roses oh yeah welcome to the jungle God, yeah that was it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he does a music video and then gets shouted at by liam neeson and then gets murdered <laughs> um <laughs> yeah but yeah cable guy it's i think it's an it's a really interesting film and because it's a little bit forgotten it's really interesting to introduce it to people who've never seen who are more familiar say with jim carrey's kind of comedies Mm. um because obviously you've shown the truman show then it's well it everyone can enjoy that and it's and that's clearly not an outright comedy this is much darker than that and much weirder and a, and less tonally balanced but still really interesting and as a character study it's actually pretty decent i would say not subtle but pretty decent so it's it worth a shot it's interesting what you said about um introducing it to someone because i was just thinking like personally for me uh when i think of jim carrey i remember uh, I watched Liar Liar a lot for some reason as a kid. I don't know why, possibly because I fancied his wife in it so much. Because I remember I would have been 13 when Cable Guy came out. So, of course, I remember watching it and finding it like oddly, oddly frightening because it's so, like you say, it's, I mean, I probably didn't understand it at the time, but the fact that yeah. it's, he's obviously had such a, like, a dark childhood. Yeah. Uh, and you, you're kind of like, oh, this isn't what I expect from Mr. Carey. No. But then if you watch, if you were introduced to Jim Carrey's, like, movies from like you say 96 97 onwards mm-hmm. and you you know someone watches you know eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and the yes. truman show and stuff like that and then you say actually they were in like a load of really knockabout comedies in the early 90s it's like what so it is quite cool yeah. that his, his, his career has these segment segments to it that is a good point actually because at the time the cable guy felt weird and out of place in his canon whereas now it it just it just feels like another of his slightly more dramatic forays. So I think now it's almost easier to appreciate. Um, whereas at the time it was the only thing which even showed any kind of other type of acting, if you see what I mean. Now it's just like, it seems like, like he's done much more serious stuff. Yeah. So Dark times or whatever it was called. Yeah. That wasn't very good. Um, uh, yeah, that, that was, um, yeah, that, so it, you're saying it's definitely worth revisiting for people who are fans of Jim Carrey or maybe have sort of watched I think it so. and thought, what? And then moved on, yeah. I think so, yeah. I'm going to talk about Jean-Claude Van Damme in Death Warrant from, I believe, actually, it was 1919... Not 1990, 1990, the same year as Lionheart. Um, so uh, I remember watching this. as This was a kit film I used to watch... Because as a kid, when I stayed with my grandparents on the weekends, it's like I wasn't allowed to watch like a horror or anything erotic. Like if anything, if anyone kissed, like my nan would put her hands over my face. But I was allowed to watch action films with any level of violence and swearing in. So 
good good grand good parent in there um so yeah i remember watching death Warrant a few times i think my grandfather used to really like it um and it, it, it used to terrify me as a kid uh have, have you seen this film before i'll, I'll talk about this i almost certainly it. have although uh, they all get a bit mixed up in my mind but yeah uh, john claude van damme was my go-to action star in the 80s so yes well this is the one with patrick kilpatrick as the main bad guy if that helps you it's actually written by david s goyer as well as a time that we talked about last week yes. um, so uh yeah uh, john claude van damme is obviously a part of the royal canadian mounted police from quebec uh called louis uh, burke and he is after a serial killer called the sandman played by patrick kilpatrick who has killed his partner and the film is effectively john claude van damme being put in this really highly maximum secure prison full of like real tinkers in america to go undercover and find out why uh, so many inmates are being killed and there seems to be a cover-up and that kind of a, it's weirdly although that's the main focus that kicks off the plot they they cannot wait to get patrick kilpatrick back into this because he supposedly kills him at the start he shoots patrick kilpatrick at the start about four thousand times in his soul and yet two years later when he's in this prison uh they just bring the salmon back and it turns out he's still alive now right which is fine it reintroduces him and obviously he recognizes john claude van damme's undercover policeman and makes his time in prison like really troublesome quite frankly because he knows if he tells everyone else like that's a cop he will just get shivved the next morning by about a thousand people but of course the problem with that is like john claude van damme is a policeman Mm. and the sandman he shot to death at the start it's a high profile case so why would there be any cover-up of the Sandman's death? Why, like they they say, mm. oh, he's been moved from another prison. So everyone be very well aware he was actually still alive. So when he's re- reintroduced, John Claude Van Damme is like, oh, I thought you were dead, but he clearly would just know he was alive and in another prison. He's yeah. dedicated his life to following <laughs> this man. So anyway, that's a bit bizarre, but it's quite a nasty film. Um, uh, the, the, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> racial slurs being bandied around, oh. and. Um, but Patrick Patrick is like an oddly frightening, oddly frightening, um, especially to a child, because he speaks in this kind of weirdly dreamy voice that they've um, obviously like dropped the pitch on. So it's kind of this weird bassy drone. Uh, he was originally going to be played by, and I mentioned this last week, but we didn't get around to it. He was originally going to be played by Peter Green from The Mask, who, if you think about Patrick Patrick or Peter Green, yeah, it would have been absolutely. Because those two together. It's a match made in heaven. Um, Patrick actually, he's he's got one of the he's got a Joker face, isn't he? Like when he smiles, it's just he distorts his face in a really creepy way. Yes, yeah, like the, the um, he's got lots lots of wrinkles on his cheeks, so it kind mm-hmm. of looks like it's hyper extended. Um, there there are clearly just scenes missing from this film to make it um to make it more punchy. There's a scene where uh, John Claude Van Damme befriends a, a a person in the prison and they say right we need to get into the medical lab to find out why these people are being dead why the death certificates are being altered and what's actually happening and they say oh, i've got a plan and then it cuts and they are both really sweaty and dirty and like bloody and they're just shutting the door and they've just arrived at the medical lab and so you don't see their plan it it's okay mm. and they're just there and they say all oh, right it's they, they're stealing organs and selling them on the black market or whatever and then it just cuts. It's it's almost like the film is just like, come on, get the Patrick or Patrick, get back to the you know the one on one. 
there's lots of kicks in this film, lots of freeze frames, like hangovers from uh, blood sport and kickboxer sort of stuff with lots of jumping roundhouses. So the martial yeah. arts uh, fans will be will be loving it. Is there also, any are there any moments where he'll do a kick or something on someone and it will really rapidly edit and look like he's done the same kick about three times? What and then go into slow motion as yes, he goes, yes. ah, ah, and then his cheeks wobble. <laughs> yes, that does happen. Well, um, there you go then. I'm going to watch it. There are two other, other little I things. I must on. have seen this. I, 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 yeah. Um, his liaison to the outside world, right? So bear in mind, Jean-Claude Van Damme is put in this... He is asked as part of his job. It's not some ropey off-the-books thing. As part of his day job to go into this prison as an inmate and find out what's happening with these, these dead, dead prisoners. And when he's in there... And he finds out what's going on. And he finds out the Sandman's obviously been sent there to, and he's going to completely blow his cover and have him killed. And he tells his liaison, uh, this this woman, everything that's going on and all the information, like the, the investigation is over. And he says, oh, look, I just need I just need a couple of hundred dollars to bribe this one guy to find out this last piece of the puzzle. I'm done. She says to his superiors, arrange this whole thing. And there's nothing shady about it. She says, oh, he just needs like $300. And they're like, no, no, we can't. We can't do that. And then it just completely puts him in this awkward position where he has to like do ropey stuff to get money in prison. You think, mm. well, what? Anyway, so the plot doesn't hold together. And there's a, re- there's a sequence where this woman, who is his liaison, gets, uh, gets sexually assaulted by the guards. Where they, they, they claim that you know, they need to check she's got a gun and they basically really humiliate and strip her. Mm. Uh, obviously Art Lafleur plays the head guard and um, and then the next scene she's really really shaken up by what's happened she's only mm. met Jean-Claude Van Damme once before in a boardroom when this whole thing was put in plot and then they meet in this conjugal van and they just have sex um, Jean-Claude Van Damme mm. just really comes on to her really clumsily she's really shaken from this assault and then they just end up sleeping with each other mm. um, and my final note says that <laughs> the ending sequence where they, it goes like it, into the basement of the prison for the final showdown with him and Sandman. The prison is about 18 stories underground. Like, this boiler room is like something from one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. It's ridiculous. They keep on falling off gantries, falling further and further down into these, like, huge exposed boilers. Like, what is happening? But, uh, yeah, it, it's silly It's silly fun. And it's not boring because there's, um, there's a lot going on. But it's uh, And it's that nice blend of, like, sort of action horror element as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely going to... I know I'm going to watch this again and just think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yes, I do remember. Uh, <laughs> because I watched everything by Van Damme at that point in my life. Yeah. Mostly because I had a friend who got um, got dodgy VHSs. Um, <laughs> so, good. Right, okay, so that's Death Warrant. What is, what is that on? That was on Prime. Never lets us down. It's always there for us. Um, Peter Dinklage. He is someone who's who puts on a bad English accent. Going back to the accents thing. Oh right, yeah. yeah. So he is basically in Game of Thrones. Peter Dinklage um, is Tyrion. He puts on an English accent, and he it it wavers. I'm not going to lie. You know, it's it's not perfect by any means. I can hear what he's trying to do. I don't think it's a stylistic choice. I think he's just trying his best. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Okay, he's not really doing a reason. It's not, you know, set in the 
British Isles specifically, although it's clearly based on that. But the point is, is that it he's still the best actor in the show because of the quality of the performance, regardless of whether the accent nails every syllable, you know? Yeah, it's I'm, with I'm the... certainly not going to get defensive about <laughs> about my neutral English accent because Peter Dinklage isn't hitting it every note. I know that like the, the kind of go-to bad accent people always pull out is Keanu Reeves in Dracula. But although it's like really plummy and really hamming it up along with Renona Ryder, again, it doesn't really bother me because the film is so good around it. It's just, and I, yeah. I, I think it's kind of like the Uvi Ball thing where people have this in their head. Oh yeah, that's awful. That is. But then when they watch it, they realize actually it's, it's not that bad. And it's the same as Uvi Ball. Like it's, Oh, he's the worst director ever, but then he makes very good films. It's just, he's like a go-to person to hate for some reason. Yes. Yeah. And if oh, you're thinking, what good films does he make? I'm talking about Tunnel Rats, guys. Better. What did you say? Better. That was a better film than Dunkirk. Good. It good. is. I genuinely believe that. And <laughs> Darfur. <laughs> should, everyone should watch Darfur to understand the meaning of the phrase, I've been Darfur'd. Which is, of <laughs> course, where you think you're going to watch one type of movie and you end up watching something deeply thought-provoking and harrowing. Um <laughs> Right then, let's move on to also on Prime. I think I'm Prime from here on, actually. Um, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. I guess these are on Prime now because the new one is out. Bill and Ted plays the music. So this is a sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, So Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves come back as the Wild Stallions. And it starts off far in the future where there's this utopian society uh, where there's statues of Bill and Ted because they save the world. And so everyone worships them. So obviously Joss Ackland um, comes along to spoil the party and sends two robot Bill and Ted's uh, these doppelgangers back in time to kill them in the Terminator style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they succeed. And Bill and Ted go to hell. Uh, which interestingly was the working was the original title of this film, Bill and Ted Go to Hell. So Bill and Ted Go to Hell, they meet death, and then they have to journey back to the real world to save their damsels and enter the Battle of the Bands, obviously. Uh, I, I, as a kid, I always preferred Bogus Journey to Excellent Adventure because I, I, I found it weirder and more daring somehow. Um, there's not much to say about winter and reeves i wouldn't say they're kind of dumb but charming that's the whole thing really isn't it yeah i remember at the time there were comparisons with wayne's world but i i don't think that's a really a fair comparison because the thing about wayne's world well the those characters were were they were kind of verbally funny if you see what i mean it was more about wordplay i'd say whereas with bill and ted they're so dumb that it's all about the situations that they're put in, if you see what I mean. Um, everything involving death, who's played by William Sadler brilliantly, is amazing. And, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, it is so good. He's so good in this. And that's all great. I love the hell imagery. It's amusingly over the top. And, of course, it never really struck me at the time, but, of course, all of the hell stuff kind of thematically fits in with their obsession with 
kind of hard rock and anthemic rock, I guess. So there's that as well. Um, and there is something endlessly appealing about Bill and Ted's sort of incessant optimism. I mean, the fact that they get <laughs> they get murdered and literally go to hell and all they can say about it is that it's bogus is funny in itself. So that's it's a kind of a one joke thing, which just it, it keeps it engaging. Um, they do. I notice they keep saying um, non heinous to mean something bad, which I don't understand because they say that's non heinous. And it's like, but heinous means wicked. So surely that means something's good. Maybe I misunderstood that. I didn't, I didn't really understand that. But anyway, um, so does Bogus Journey hold up? And I'd say mostly it does. I'd say that most of the stuff in the real world is kind of not that interesting. Although I did like the bit where the robot versions of the cells are playing basketball with their own heads. That was quite amazing. But but so much of the film is based in this weird hallucinatory other world that it keeps you interested. Um, and it's got a really cheesy Kiss song at the end, um, which is... All they tended songs to are cheesy, this, <laughs> but they, they tended to do this quite a lot with like eighties and nineties comedies, which would be like almost like a, a kind of final number to almost appealing to the audience to get on their feet or something. Mm. Uh, I always find it a bit cringeworthy, to yes, be honest. Yeah. Like at the end of Scrooge with Bill Murray, where he's literally addressing the audience and saying, "Come on, you over there, stand up and sing," and it's like, "Oh, please, God, no." I can. I would not want to be in that cinema. Anyway, um, if that happened in the cinema I was sat in and people stood up and started dancing, I would vomit flies that feed only <laughs> on human faces. <laughs> hell. So you wouldn't join in, I take it. I'd clap, but I wouldn't dance. <laughs> I'd clap politely. Um, yeah. So, but William Sadler. Is, is so good in this and the bit where they because the whole point is that they, they have to do this deal with death they have to beat him it, it's sort of based on ingmar Bergman's the seventh seal obviously where they have to in that film he plays chess against death in order to win back his mortality and um in this they play like battleships and twister and stuff but what's really funny about that sequence is the fact that they keep beating him and death just gets really annoyed <laughs> like really pissed off at them <laughs> and increasingly frustrated but William Sadler is so like understated in this you can just watch him the whole time like because he has to follow he's like bound to follow them after that and he's just so ashamed to be around them <laughs> it's brilliant um I, so yeah I might watch this I've this is one of these are this an excellent adventure of those films that kind of like Wayne's World and Goonies and stuff that people have these really fond childhood memories of but I was far too busy watching Dolph Lundgren films so I think I saw them when I was a kid and thought oh yeah that's kind of fun <laughs> back to Jean-Claude Van Damme and Death Warrant so uh, it'd be interesting to watch them again now yeah I wouldn't uh, say it was laugh out loud hilarious or anything but it's it's got so many weird ideas in it that um, and as I said that like all the interplay with William Sadler is so funny that it yeah it's definitely worth a watch Holds up have, you, right. have you seen the the new one? New. I'm not sure I really fancy that. I might it, watch it. I'm, I'll watch it on behalf <laughs> of the show then because I, I've, I've got no expectations at all. I don't. They'll probably be doing callbacks. Yeah, I suppose there is that. I've got no expectations either. And yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, 
it's not like they've got a it's hardly they're hardly classics in their own right really are they so it's not like they've got to uphold his great legacy <laughs> it's just a bit of fun from the 80s exactly uh, the next film i'm going to talk about is one that i surprisingly enjoyed and this is edward john stazak in day of the panther which is an australian martial arts movie from 1988 this is directed by a name that i remembered but I, I realized when I looked into it, you were far more familiar with his work than I am. This is directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith. Oh, yes. Uh, so I, I he did, um, I think, from what you said before, he's done... Dead um, End Driving. Dead End Driving, BMX Bandits. He's done a couple mm. of um, of classics. Now, this, I, this yeah, is, I mean, I think uh, Dead End Driving, Driving is a genuinely really good film. Uh, I love it. Is that an Australian film as well? It I'm is. It's Australian, Australian man, like, like, sort of post-apocalyptic kind of thing quite cheap but it's yeah real weird fusion of genres well worth a watch bit of a bit of a lost gem um so, so this film is uh it's, it's an exploitation martial arts film um so it's filmed on location australia and it, the plot is that edward stazak is part of this weird uh sort of a almost like a, a cult a cabal of a few people who were sort of dedicated to this this martial art and he's somehow tied it doesn't really explain he's like somehow tied in with government somehow and his partner gets killed by a man who looks like a cross between david hater and chris penn uh, and so he goes underground into this this criminal drug organization to get to the head guy who turns out to be someone who looks like Richard Brake um, and, and sort of topple this, this drug cartel um, in memory of his partner. It's a really weird intro because I obviously had no, no clue about this film, never heard of any of the actors in it at all, never come across it before. And I didn't, I only knew Brian Trenchard Smith by you mentioning for other films. And it starts off and it's this weird sort of um, percussive heavy music. And they're in this cave and it shows this, ritual where edward stazak gets branded because the film's called day of the panther this branded on his forearm with this panther brand and gets initiated by this older bloke in, into this sort of martial arts cult and there's a voiceover by someone called john stanton who's got a great voice talking about the history of like what are they uphold good and justice and i thought oh this really seems like it's based on an existing you know, some mm. form of existing media, like a comic book. But no, it's just this really heavy mythology at the, at the start that really does need to be there. But good, it's an interesting scene. Um, Edward Stazak is someone who is a really, really good martial artist. And I, I, I kind of had high hopes because it's um, it was written by Peter West, who is more widely known as a stunt coordinator than a director, mm. sorry, than a writer. And at the start, I noticed it had two fight choreographers credited. Um, quite high up in the in the in the credits, so I thought, oh, this is obviously gonna, this isn't just like he's a martial artist. And they said, I oh, just do what you want, just do a few kicks. This is tightly choreographed stuff. Mm. And whilst it's and you know, like those we've talked about this with films in the seventies, more in the seventies, but also in the eighties with low budget films. Um, mm. st what, which is the zombie? Uh, the the go to scene I, I I always say for this sort of thing when there's a kind of looseness in the film that makes you think that the actors are generally at risk and it's all a bit rough and ready. What's that? <laughs> what's that zombie film where the, it's like an RV that breaks down in the desert? Is it The Hills Have Eyes? Yes. Yeah. 
there's a scene in that, right? And it, and it makes me wince to think about it, where the young boy who's about 11 years old is wearing Converse trainers and he's running away from a cannibal and he's jumping down a really steep, dusty desert slope filled with boulders and he's jumping from boulder to boulder. And it's very clear that if one foot slipped, or if you missed time to jump, he would shatter his leg. It would just catch and snap. And it's watching it. It makes me just think, oh my God, he's actually doing that. They just filmed him running down that. <laughs> anyway, this kind of has that thing because the opening sequence is, is his partner, a woman, who's also a good martial artist, running around, let's call it what it is, an abandoned industrial estate in the desert, um, away from these guys in masks. And it's like a really quite a cool long chase scene through this estate stopping and fighting and it's using all the environments and and they're jumping from roof to roof and tumbling down and falling off and you think these are the actors doing this there's no there's no stud people yet so it's got that kind of raw quality to it and then when it gets into the actual um story it, it's ridiculous it's just it's him supposedly taking on this cartel he gets introduced to this bloke who looks like richard Brake, and he could just kill him there and then but of course mm. the film would be 20 minutes long so he gets further and further into it blah 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 but yeah edward stazak is a really good martial artist and i was the the fight scenes are quite interesting and it's always just you know him and a group of guys and you can see he's very skilled and well choreographed um i was watching this and our mutual friend plowman i happened to i messaged him once in a blue moon and i he happened to message me and i said oh, i'm watching this film called day of the panther have you seen it and he said oh yeah all i remember from that film is someone wearing an awful suit during a fight at a dock and i thought oh that's weird that's the scene i'm watching now so i thought oh this i'm looking forward to this seeing this awful 80s suit so i'm watching the film and edward stays that comes in and he gets into a fight on a dockyard wearing a suit. And I was disappointed because I thought, well, hang on now. He's actually wearing like really cool clothes. 80s cool, but he looks a bit like Don Johnson. He's got like um like fitted cotton um like gray trousers. Admittedly, he's got like tight gray socks on and gray shoes, but that's fine. And then he's got like a really well-fitted suit jacket, sleeves pushed down, not up. And under it, he's got a fitted salmon cotton shirt tucked in with a nice collar. And I thought, it's 80s, but it's cool. That's just disappointing. And then and then I saw the suit that Plowman was talking about because after the fight, the guy, who, the main henchman who looks like a cross between Chris Penn and David Hayter walks on and he is wearing an all-in-one black leotard with patent leather ballet pumps with tassels on, no socks, and then over it, an oversized shoulder-padded ruffled, like rough blue blazer in an australian summer and he doesn't take it off for the rest of the film it's unbelievable his shoes they're not just like it, it when he takes those off if he gets a girl back to his hotel room and says oh, oh let's get some sex then first of all let me take off these shoes these patent leather shoes that i've been wearing all day in the blazing australian heat with no socks on he <laughs> is going to have a shower first and he, of course he's doing and they're like weird ballet pumps because they don't they're so low on his feet you can see the sides of his feet they're literally like the things wait, like waitresses wear and stuff it's what but with big wobbly tassels on it's astonishing um the music is is really cool. It's just um, really wailing '80s guitar and keyboard action, Fine. and uh, and there's also a scene where he, uh, Edward Stazak seduces um, a woman in a hotel room, a hotel room that is completely peach in color, down to the phone and the color of the basket he is pouring wine from. It's beautiful. And there's also a sequel called, I think it's called Strike of the Panther, which I'm very much on board with watching. So this was a real hidden gem for martial arts fans. Yeah. 
I started watching this a while back, but I I remember stopping because I thought I'm watching it whilst working, and I need I need to watch it. I, I, this isn't one for the background. It, it, it needs to be watched. Yeah, it's re- it's really good. I really enjoyed it. It, it seemed it seemed like it had some cool fight sequences and stuff in it, and actually had some kind of a storyline. So I know yeah. it's got a pretty solid cult following. Oh, so, really? Yeah. There's um, this, I'm keen for the sequel, but also, um, like I said, it's just a shame that um, Edward Stazak isn't a name we're more familiar with because apparently in he did strike of the panther which was filmed back to back with this one and then in 1991 he did a film called black neon which looks like another martial arts film but it's classed as a lost film it's just not available ah. anyway and that was pretty much his career over with so it's a real shame oh, that sucks I, this yeah. is on prime isn't it let's face it <laughs> yeah um okay also on prime the wedding crashes uh which is 2004 i think mm-hmm. it's like an it's sort of like an american pie era version of four weddings and a funeral is this the one with owen wilson and vince vaughn yes it is yes it is um so this is a really awkward blend of crassness misogyny and sentimentality it has a lot of bad taste comedy but at the same time occupies this universe of basically conservative traditional values with Coldplay ballads on the soundtrack. So it's a very soft anarchy, if it is at all. Uh, they So the, their wedding crashes, these are two men who go around crashing weddings in order to pull women, unapologetically. They have virtually their own language for discussing the various ways they're going to manipulate women into bed. Um, so they're not so much lovable rogues as calculating con men. The problem is, the fundamental problem is, they are depicted as if they're meant to be attractive or aspirational rather than sad and desperate. And that the latter would have been funnier and it would have made the film less uncomfortable. Um, Isla Fisher rocks up. And she is insufferable as this virgin turned nympho who's all over Vince Vaughn. Mm. Her relationship with Vince Vaughn has this, she's not that much younger than him, but she's depicted much younger. And her relationship with him has this creepy air of a kind of Lolita trying to seduce an older professor. So that's not great. Um, And then um, Owen Wilson's uh, catch is Rachel McAdams who I like a lot. Um, some would say I'm in love with, in fact. But um, <laughs> but her character makes no sense. She's with... Uh, so basically, they crash this really, really wealthy guy's wedding. Um, uh, and basically, the daughter is Rachel McAdams. And she's, going, she's betrothed to Bradley Cooper, who is just a grotesque oaf. He's just horrible. And it makes no sense. Rachel McAdams' character makes no sense because she is so well-oriented and kind-hearted and down-to-earth. And she's under no particular pressure to marry Bradley Cooper other than, I suppose, her father is excited about the families getting together. But, you know, essentially she's really under no pressure. And yet she's she sticks with this horrible man. I mean, it's obviously she's going to get with Owen Wilson eventually, but still, anyway. So naturally, 
it's up to Owen Wilson to aggressively pursue her because she has no apparent agency of her own and she's just waiting to be rescued from her situation with Bradley Cooper. Um, there's there's one scene which is potentially amusing, this dinner party scene, where the guys risk being uncovered as frauds. But the film doesn't have any confidence in its script, so it needs to go to the gross-out or the smutty end of the spectrum. And so, like, it has a load of dialogue, but then it's also got Isla Fisher giving uh, Vince Vaughn a hand job under the table. Right. Yes. Um, and there's there's a really, really problematic um, predatory gay son sequence where Vince Vaughn ends up tied to a bed for reasons. And this really, really, like, mentally unwell uh gay son comes into the room and basically starts touching Vince Vaughn up and it sort of pathologizes homosexuality in a very old-fashioned way and in a very unfunny way as well. And the problem is with this is that there's no there's no lead up to it. There's no context to it. It's this you've seen this guy before and there's no context other than the guy is gay. So therefore it apparently he has he's inevitably going to be a rapist of men i suppose so that isn't funny um and and then later on like when owen wilson is down and out and he thinks he's lost rachel McAdams, he relieves his anguish obviously by sexually assaulting a bride at a wedding oh mm -hmm. what a what a cute rogue he is um so the comedy is very mean-spirited with a very cynical view of male female interrelations and it's it's like there's this huge dishonest game going on between the sexes uh and only like the magic spell of love can break through it which mm -hmm. is totally disingenuous and bullshit but there you go both those perspectives are dishonest anyway uh, it i i mean it, i suppose it's typical of the laws of romantic comedies but we don't need that shit. Um, weirdly, though, because in a way it's on the surface, it's a throwback to the kind of 40 screwball comedies um, to which it obviously owes a lot. And yet it feels more dated even than them because of its sexual politics and because of its gross out humour. It's, it's a weird one. It's not funny. And it feels very, very dated. I uh, think uh, not you, worth watching. <laughs> you, two things. One of them, I just wonder who who plays the dad that's keen for the two families to get together because that seems like the perfect casting to get just wheeling some old timer with a bit of gravitas. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. It's Christopher Walken. He does nothing. <laughs> He does Brilliant. nothing in this film. You're waiting for him to have a comedy moment, but nothing. and have a dance. He, he might as well have just literally phoned it in. He could have just it, had a cardboard cutout on set. It cannot be worse than Lance Henriksen in Johanna, where that that's like the most just tacked on cameo I've ever encountered. And I think we'll ever encounter because the only way that they could beat that cameo for just someone rocking up for a couple of quid is if they literally inserted a subliminal image of an actor in another film. There's no, you couldn't be worse. Um, 
Yeah, and the other thing is, I, I like I like your turn of phrase of potential amusement, and I'd love to see that on the like the wedding crashes potentially amusing. So it's it's admitting it's not funny, but there's like the premise to lead up to a scene yeah. that could be funny but but wasn't, and well, that happens for because it's a like okay, it's a classic comedy setup, really, isn't it? Like they're frauds, they've managed to fraudulently get their way into this kind of family. And they've got this big dinner party and it's very risky because, of course, people start asking them questions about their backgrounds and stuff. And so a better film with a good script might have had some humour in that situation. But no, it Who takes the this? lowest common denominator route. No idea, to be honest. Some, hmm. Someone who probably directed other movies of that era, I'm guessing. I'll find out. And... Um, I'm I'm yeah. going to leap into I'm going to do two at once if that's cool because there's sequels and there. So I'm going to talk about FX Murder by Illusion and FX Two <laughs> The Deadly Art of Illusion. Um, these are films I've never seen before, and they star Brian Brown and Brian Danner. He good the two Brians, one with a bri- one with a Y, one with an I. Um, guess which one I fancy more. Um, <laughs> this is a weird one because I've always liked Brian Danner, but apart from him is like pretty brief appearance in 1996's Tommy Boy with Chris Farley. I'm unable in my mind to to work out why I like him so much because it's certainly not because of the Jack Reed series. And I I, I don't know why. I still haven't got to the bottom of that. But this, if you are a Brian Dennehy fan, these are two films that you should definitely be quite familiar with. Um, and I want to talk more about the second one, but the, the setup for them well, both effectively is that... Um, Brian Brown plays someone called Rolly Tyler, who is a special effects guy on films. And he gets dragged into this um, situation set up supposedly by the police where he take, he fakes the murder of a mob boss played by the dad from um, Dirty Dancing. Um, uh, he's going to go into the witness protection Rolly Tyler's going to get paid a lot of money and the mob aren't going to worry about him mouthing off to the police because they're going to assume he's dead. So that's the, the initial setup. Uh, Brian Brown gets framed and goes on the run and tries to clear his name. So the, the film is fine, right? It's quite lighthearted. Um, although where it shows all the molding and the sort of squibs and the blood packs, all interesting behind the scenes stuff. There's quite a few horror mm. props and references to horror films that um, he has done. And then there's some Home Alone gadgetry going on, which is fine. All good, all good fun. They um, must have loved this. <laughs> she, she, she did. I, I, she was hoping for a third and fourth film. Um, <laughs> but this is this one thing is there's a scene in it where they it's it's so basic, it's so obvious that they thought right there's not enough of these kind of gadgety special effects things. We have to insert one. So if you imagine right, there's a car park of impounded vehicles. And his van is in there with all this gear in. So he needs to get into this car park. He, he's already got the keys to the car. And all he needs to do is get in and drive it out. And there's a wooden barrier blocking the way. Like, you know, a, a barrier arm that goes up and down. So you, he, you see him cut his way through a fence. And he's by his van. So I thought, right, you're obviously going to just get in and just drive out. No. He lights a load of... Goes around, sneakers around the car park. Lights a load of explosives under all these cars then waits by his van, waits them to explode, so cars explode, and then so he causes a huge scene that draws police attention, then drives out with sort of a load of police hot on his heels. Uh, so he's 
not only was it a crap plan, but it's also a crap plan that's made his situation far worse. Um, so anyway, that that kind of amused me. But Brian Dennehy in this film is bizarre because this film is eighty. This is eighty six, and the sequel's in ninety one. And Brian Dennehy looks older in this film than the sequel. He's got this mustache and this like like long, almost Mel Gibsony sort of graying hair, and he plays a rough and tumble Irish cop um, that is. It, it, looks like he's tracking down Raleigh Tyler but when he realises he's being framed sort of works with him towards the end of the film um, there's a lot of cool set pieces some very silly that obviously don't stand up to close scrutiny but it's all good fun and there's quite a light hearted tone that goes through it and it's like I, how long is it it felt quite breezy it's 108 minutes but it's just a cool 80s um, gadgety sort of thriller yeah. film cool the sequel which I much prefer I like this film but I much preferred the sequel because it it's much dark. I say darker in tone. It's the same thing, but the, the what makes it better is that Brian, the, the two Brian's get equal screen time, and Brian Dan he is just. I just find him really watchable. Just like not so much charming because he's this hulking brute, but I just like looking at him and, and on. He's just a good presence. So in this sequel, they've the, they've got all the money from the first film, and they've sort of gone their separate ways amicably. But um, Brian Brown gets dragged again into. Uh, the he is with a woman who has a son and the the father of the child who they kind of get on with is a cop and they ask brian brown again to come back in and stage stage this woman uh this this she's got a peeping tom after her and they want to catch him because they think he's a killer so they want brian brown to make a cop look like this woman as if she's having a shower so that when this guy comes in to attack her they can just stop him. So, I mean, really, mm. you're thinking, well, you know that this guy's the killer. You've got all this evidence. So why don't you just arrest him, really? And, and like, you know, do police work instead of basically just entrapping him. <laughs> um, but either way, they set up this sort of sequence of events and he catches footage that shows there's some sort of police cover-up. The plot is ridiculous. because it, it, it starts off with, you know, the police uh, kill, like sort of... A, cops killing another cop for reasons unknown and then it turns into this thing about these golden coins designed by michelangelo based on art from the sistine chapel that have been hidden in a church in america for hundreds of years you're like what but, but that's all fine it doesn't it doesn't get bogged down in it it's just a ridiculous plot that's actually quite breezy um this uh, uh this I've read about this, and when I was watching the film, I was quite surprised because the first like 15, 20 minutes are dark in every possible term. It's like it's quite a dark story. There's mm. like br a brutal throat slashing, and when someone gets shot, it's quite visceral, mm. and it's like a really moody tone, and it's actually visually dark as well. And I thought, oh, this is like leaning into like you know proper sort of um, more moody territory. But then there's lots of like knockabout comedy stuff. And then there's, and so you think, oh, it's, it's brightening up a bit now. And then there's a sequence where Brian Dennehy has the most unbelievable relationship with this woman, where he sees her every couple of years purely to use her for her computer expertise. He's clearly 30 years older than her, and he just rocks in, forces her to like put her job at risk to give him information, and then he just shoots off, and she doesn't see him for months at a time. And yet she falls in love with him. They say, oh, we'll have to get a hot dog. She gets shot dead before there is mustard on a hot dog. Brutally mown down in a hail of machine gun fire in Brian Dennehy's arms. And it's just never mentioned again. It's a scene that doesn't need to be in the film. It has no impact on anything. Um, it leads up to a, a big, a big funny ending with lots of um, 
stunts and it's even more gadgety than the first one mm. and it's i think it's a better film than the first one just because it's they know the first one worked so they just went all out and mm. it is a film that i kind of wish there was like another three or four films because I, with you know you got a special effects guy with a history of, of in the movies you've got the buddy cop thing going on um you've got the sort of familial protection thing going on with brian brown's side uh and, and there's a lot going on that it would have been a mileage and it, it is a shame that it just sort of stopped after two films because i would have happily watched another two or three of them quite frankly that would have inevitably declined in quality but that's fine because the quality was so high to start with so, did yeah. it not do as well as something i wonder i'm just having a look at the oh, david at number one in the box office oh the sequel is not mm. as successful as the first film no, yeah um yeah the second one is directed by richard franklin who did psycho 2 Another Aussie director, by the way. I, you know, they're all, they're all good. They know what they're doing. These yeah. are, I mean, Psycho uh, 2 is an underrated movie. You'd think that a film made 20 years after the original, <laughs> which didn't need a sequel, would be bad. But it's actually really good. So, uh, And that balances pretty severe darkness with moments of comedy as well. So obviously he knew what he was doing. Oh my God. Um, this uh, just sorry, Quentin Tarantino has cited Richard Franklin's Road Games as his favorite Australian movie, and it's a 1981 thriller starring Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. How how have I not seen that? <laughs> I know that Tarantino was a fan of Brian Trenchard Smith as well, of course. Because he's got taste. The thing is, like I, I can really see that these these are good films that I need to watch with my eyes. There's a there's a whole exploitation genre just waiting for you out there. Oh my um, God. Uh, right then, shall we move on to, I'm just going to say it now, this is my film of the week. <laughs> okay. Because I liked it so much. Is it Ghoulies? Bloody hell. I have seen that. I I'm, have I'm actually on the seen bridge. both, I've seen both FX movies, but literally not since they were on VHS, like 25, 30 years ago. What, watch so them back I'm, to, they're perfect back to backers. Absolutely yeah. perfect. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm intrigued now because it, it's going to be one of those weird situations where it's like I, it, like it's not so much memory of specific scenes; it will just it's somehow seeped into my consciousness somewhere. Um, so where are they? They're on Prime, probably. Are they? Yes. Also on Prime, I think. Cop Car. Have you seen this? Oh, with Kevin Bacon. Yes. Yes. Loved I liked it. it. Oh, nice. So this is quite a slow burn, backwards thriller. Not backwards, but backwards um, with Kevin Bacon. Has kind of hints of Stand By Me, I suppose. A bit of Sugarland Express and a bit of Mud as well. Sort of a Midwest noir almost. Um, so these two... Oddly believable kids are playing in the fields when they come across a cop car just sitting in a copse of trees and they they find the keys and they take it joyriding. Unfortunately, there's a body in the boot and perhaps other things. Um, and now the killer, the supposed killer, uh, Kevin Bacon, needs to track the car down. Uh, I'm going to say nothing more because it, it's not a complex film as such, but it, it relies on 
unexpected editing and surprising occurrences. So it's really beautifully shot and thankfully doesn't have a deep brown filter because it's serious. Um, and <laughs> it's nicely edited. It has this really strange otherworldly score, sort of a kind of goes freeform jazzy at times. And it's a little bit whimsical and that kind of plays with the tone quite a lot and it the film does really maintain this wonderful balance between thrills without being silly and humor without laying out the jokes and i found but i did find i found kevin bacon's performance very funny in this film because his his sheer panic when he realizes the car is gone is just brilliant and he's just pegging it across the fields to get it back um and i do love films where you you're following the bad guy and even though you don't sympathize with him as such there's still tension in his attempts to evade capture or defeat if you see what i mean like mm. in real life you wouldn't want him to get away but in this because you're watching all the minute details um of his escape it's quite it's quite thrilling the kids are so convincing in this and it's not just in their performances they're like i don't know how old are they probably eight or something, I guess. And it's not just the performances, but the way they get drawn into the whole ridiculous debacle through their pure childish innocence. And they've got this longing for adventure. So they're almost like when they're freaking out about stuff, it's almost performative for each other, which is something that kids do, you know, cause they want to make it more exciting. Um, and you would wonder how interesting it would be watching two kids ask about in a car for 90 minutes but there is a lot of drama to be had just in the sheer danger of it all because like it's so dangerous what they're doing and when they end up they find these assault rifles in the car and they're messing about with these assault rifles and it's and pointing them at each other and pretending that they're going to shoot each other and it's just scary but also kind of hilarious at the same time and of course there's this impending contact with Kevin Bacon who if he's killed before then he may well kill them so and it there's a lot of fun in the fact that the kids can't comprehend the situation so their decision making is often pretty illogical but believably so if you see what i mean and we share in their confusion because we've no idea why kevin bacon's done what he's done or even if it's if he's truly done what we think he's done and there's this whole overarching theme of childhood versus adulthood because Kids aren't wise and they are incompetent. It's understandably so. But Kevin Bacon's character is obviously smart and competent, yet chooses to use his skills for nefarious ends. So what it's saying is that we've got this potential in us to be competent and wise and decent, and it's something of a gift and there's this bafflement in the kids' eyes as they watch these adults who are so full of hate and malice. And you're not just rooting for them to survive, but also for their innocence to survive as well. I think my only gripe with the film would be the very ending, because I do like an ambiguous ending, but I, it, felt a, it felt more like we were just leaving the story halfway through a scene. But maybe that's just because I really wanted it to keep going. But it's a great <laughs> film, and it couldn't make a profit despite only costing like five million or something didn't make a profit and it's that's a bit tragic so 
everyone needs to watch this movie because I, really, I remember really liked it. I remember really liking it, but I don't. I, it's one of those films that I probably really liked at the time and maybe got lost in the shuffle a bit in my head. So I've made a note to watch that again because, um, well, like I said, the last Kevin Bacon film I watched was that one where he's like in a house playing with a protractor. So this sounds better than that. <laughs> Quite frankly, <laughs> it might be. Uh... Um, <clears throat> well, what? This was a contender for my film of the week, but I've I've made my decision and I'm sticking to it. I watched American Ninja Two: The Confrontation with Michael Dudikoff because after watching um, Moving Target last week and quite frankly being extremely disappointed in Mr. Dudikoff's performance, I thought I, I need to watch American Ninja Two again because this is I remember this is like the go-to kind of take the piss for fun film between me and my brother Transvaal. And I haven't seen it for a long time because I think I watched it so many times as a teenager that I, I just haven't seen it for like 15 years or whatever. And it's still absolutely brilliant. And it's brilliant for kind of the right reasons. Cause it's, it's, so this is, a, this is a 1987 film starring Michael Dudikoff and the much-missed Steve James, um, released by Canon Films. So you know, it's, a, it's almost a seal of approval, really, isn't it? And the plot is that following the first film... Uh, Army Rangers Joe Armstrong, Curtis Jackson, played by Dudikoff and James, are sent to this. They say it's a remote Caribbean island, but it's South Africa. It's South Africa because everyone there speaks with a pronounced South African accent, guys. Um, and uh, to, to sort of aid the Marine Corps in looking into disappearances of Marines that have happened on this this island. Um, it's a martial arts film, but it's got a real sense of humor about it. It's so self-aware of of what it is that you, you're on board with it. It's like some, you, I always felt like I was sort of laughing with it as opposed to at it, which I didn't do as a kid. I just thought it was a sort of a silly crap film, but you realize there's actually a kind of genius in having this odd lightness of touch with all this, this theatrical uh, Kung Fu going on. So um, they rock up the first, the first sign, right. That, that you realize that maybe it's not going to be the most, tightly scripted of films is when they, they turn up on this island they get off the plane in, the, in their full military regalia and they look at it so they, they they get off a plane that they've flown from america to the caribbean on get off the island they look at the airport and then michael dudikoff looks at a bit of paper he's holding and says this is the place and i thought well of course it is you've flown there it's not like you it's not like you've been looking for an address for hours you've got you're on the tarmac or in a this country, Cape Town. Yeah. So, um, so then they they go they go to this. They realize that this compound of this American embassy they're going to be working from is everyone is just wearing like surfwear, and they find out that it's. They said, "Oh, no one's really doing any work, guys. You're not like protecting anything. You're just like getting battered and surfing." And they said, "So it's so that the, the locals don't, you know, get suspicious of us or find us a threat. We just kind of, mm. you know, mingle the populace." Along. Sounds like a How pretty convenient. good job, <laughs> anyway, right? So they walk in, and the camp, the captain, who's called Wild Bill, is in his office, and he stands up and he launches. He's unimpressed with them because I don't know if this is an American thing, but I, I supposedly they're army rangers and everyone else is a marine, and they seem to hate each other for some reason. Don't know if that sticks to truth in real life or whatever. But the commanding officer stands up and launches into a lengthy kind of tirade against him, specifically saying, "I know you've been sent to help me, but I resent it." We can do this all ourselves. Like we know that my, you're here to help me find my men that are missing, and 
you've been flown in by people above me and you know just i know why you're here basically and i don't want you here and then he ends this dialogue and i've written down it verbatim i don't know who you are what you are or why you're here but stay the hell out of my way but he has just spent two minutes explicitly explaining and and revealing that he knows exactly why they're there so that was fine the soundtrack is just wailing electric guitar and or every location of course this was back in the day when everything was filmed um sort of on location so there's beautiful island scenery and towns everywhere um in south africa the plot is um, i didn't realize how amazing the plot was right um so the the film builds up they're going around there's lots of like fun sort of theatrical silly kung fu and throwing shurikens and having fights and stuff steve james is amazing as he always is and the film builds up and they come across this woman who's being hunted by ninjas and she they go to this dockyard at night and a daytime sorry and michael dudikoff she says shouldn't we go back to the embassy tell everyone what's going on get a large force of people and assault this drug dealer's compound and michael dudikoff says no sounds wise we'll we'll just wait for nighttime and go over ourselves (laughs) in a in a in a rowing boat even though it's 20 miles away so he would turn up knackered right so so they're sitting there and he, they're sitting having this heart to heart, and the music goes to like a gentle flute solo, and and the woman he says to her, how how are you mixed up in all. Well, actually, the way Michael Dudek talks, it's like, oh, so how are you mixed up in all this then? And she says, well, my mother passed away because of cancer, and my father was a great scientist, and he dedicated his entire life to finding a cure for cancer, but instead he accidentally created ninjas. And Michael Dudikoff is like, yep, okay, that seems, carry on, yep, yep, I can see how that would happen. It's a common offshoot of scientific research, isn't it? Literally says those words. And then, so, they assault the compound, Steve James gets wind of where they are, and, um, yeah, and then there's a big fight sequence at the end. But, and I want to chat about this for a minute, right? We get shown the guy apparently the bad guy in this as well who's the main bad guy in this is the person who wrote the third film that michael dudikoff wasn't and he was replaced by david bradley possibly why i've never watched it so they go to this compound on this island this drug dealer has got and he is claimed to all these investors i say investors they're basically other drug dealers he's trying to say if you give me a load of money then i'll let you have my ninjas to make sure your shipments go unhindered sort of thing right so he's walking around in this white suit through this. It's clearly just a load of um, like gymnasium toilets that they've just put like hospital beds in with like people with tubes in in these uh, stasis pods and stuff. And he says, these aren't just ninjas. These are super ninjas. And they demand a demonstration. Right. Mm-hmm. This is important. This is possibly one of the most amazing sequences I've ever seen in cinema. So I'm just going to just just try and so that. They're on a podium. There's a podium with this this guy who's this drug lord who's created these ninjas. The doctor behind him who's like looking a bit he's constantly like shaking his head, like oh, I can't believe I was trying to cure cancer and I created bloody ninjas. I swear to mm. I didn't expect those to pop out of the petri dish. And he so they're all there, all wearing suits, eighties glasses, and they're all paying millions of dollars to this man who has said to them, these are indestructible super ninjas. So all the, you will never be in trouble again. They're the perfect bodyguards. And he says, a demonstration. And it cuts 
to a load of people in this sort of sandy arena pit. All these ninjas. There's about 25 to 30 ninjas in there. And like I see hundreds of dozens of ninjas scattered around the side standing watching. And they go into this awful unchoreographed like sort of um you know shadow fighting routine this this um and and they're not in sync with each other at all right it's all it's just awkward mm. to watch and he's nodding along like it's really impressive and then he calls one of the ninjas who's the main henchman to come down and they all attack him and they do not touch him and he hacks them down one after the other right they literally run at him and he just kills them all like 20 or 30 of them mm. and they get dragged off and he turns around and bows, and everyone is super impressed. And I thought, you've just told these people that they are indestructible ninjas, and they've all just been bested by one man, one <laughs> unarmed man. So you've literally gone against your own point, and, and everyone's impressed, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then following that, then, Michael Dudikoff turns up, and um, he's wearing like a, a red sash so we can tell when he's undercover which ninja he is in the fight scenes and he gets into a fight with this this head ninja and gives him a kicking and then it cuts to this other ninja and he's just he's just holding a shotgun that he's just pulled out of his ass he's wearing like he's wearing like a ninja suit there's no way to hide the shotgun and when he starts losing he just pulls the shotgun out and starts shooting at michael dudikoff who's in an exposed circular pit and he just runs in a straight line away from him and avoids like six shotgun blasts brilliant um, and then obviously the woman falls in love with him and the film ends. But yeah, it's just that that sequence where the Spoiler. demonstration yeah, the demonstration exists specifically to show the like inhuman, unkillable machines, and then they just get slaughtered by one bloke. It's what? Is it, did, anyone, did anyone read the script? But yeah, American Ninja 2 is one of the best films ever made. <laughs> what was his subtitle? The co- the oh god was it the confrontation? There's a sequence in this as well. Yeah, the confrontation. There's a sequence where they rescue these marines because what's happening? Of course, they're getting marines and then brainwashing them and turn them into ninjas. But when when Michael Dudikoff breaks into the facility at the end and he's sneaking around, he finds the marines just like a floor down, not even in a basement, just like in an office behind an unlocked door, so they could just open the door and run out. Um, brilliant. But yeah, classic film. Watch it. Bloody hell. That's on Prime, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, Beverly Hills Cop is not on Prime, but it can be rented for money on Prime, which I did, um, because two and three are on there. So I thought, uh, well, I have to watch the first one first, you know. Again, uh, as we know, this was made in 1984. Um, although the original script was written in the 70s, um as a straight thriller it was obviously then remodeled as a comedy action movie um but actually when sylvester stallone was offered the part he rewrote it again as a straight thriller and eventually it landed with eddie murphy who was a comedian at that time best known as being comedian but you can still see the serious elements in this um and so i'm sure everyone's pretty familiar with it it's, it's actually a pretty decent story, or it's, it, but it's a simple setup. Effectively, um, um, Eddie Murphy plays Axel Foley, a cop in Detroit, very streetwise cop in Detroit, undercover cop, and his friend gets murdered in front of him, and he tracks the killer to Beverly Hills, where he goes on, supposedly on vacation, but actually to go and investigate. Um, he 
meets with these two kind of klutz cops um, who he gets to help him and ends up in what I believe is the same mansion they used at the end of Commando for the big shootout. Um, but yeah, the, the serious elements of this, it's interesting, this, because the tonal balance is actually really, really perfectly calibrated. And I think part of that is because it's directed by Martin Brest, who also did Midnight Run. And I know we're both big fans of Midnight Run. Oh, yeah, and yeah. that was another movie which had a perfect tonal balance. It had some dramatic weight, but also a kind of really enjoyable, propulsive breeziness about it. Um, but you can imagine this as a like the very first sequence, if you remember the, the credit sequence is literally just a load of shots of really poor people in Detroit. Um, but it's got really upbeat music over the top, really upbeat, like synth pop, because every song in this film is upbeat synth pop. But I can imagine if if you could start that film with exactly the same shots of poor people in the streets, in dilapidated buildings and stuff, and just put some really somber piano music over the top, it would instantly just change the tone totally. Anyway, um, it's a really cool film, basically, Beverly Hills Cop. The joy is in watching Eddie Murphy just throw himself into every situation. Um, He's sort of got the confidence of a 70s type cop, but more charisma, more charm. He will disarm people with charm before taking them down, basically. And that's also how he gets favours from cops. Um, And I noticed that it uses this repeated formula of bosses and subordinates to help us kind of relate. What I mean is that... so. So Eddie Murphy meets these two cops. They're skeptical of him. When their boss comes down, Ronnie Cox, good. good. Um, those when their boss comes down hard on them, those cops get closer to Axel Foley. And then later on, when Ronnie Cox's boss comes down on him, Ronnie Cox sympathizes with Foley as well. So it's like there's always a bigger fish, basically, to remind us of our common purpose in humanity. And of course, it's one of the three classic. 80s performances from Ronnie Cox alongside Robocop and Total Recall. Total Recall counts as an 80s film, I think so, just about. It's a really good movie, Beverly Hills Cop. Kind of lightning in a bottle, maybe. Kind of timeless. It's just very, very watchable. Will the sequels improve? We'll only find out in a few minutes when you lead into them, Rupert. There's no other way of knowing. (laughs) Yeah. You cannot read between the lines. What I'm saying, I watched Poltergeist, not that one. I watched the 2015 remake with Sam Rockwell. Okay, I've, I have never seen the original Poltergeist. And Faye right. said, Do you want to watch the original? And I said, da, 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 da. Straight into the remake, please. Uh, yeah, I've seen both. Yes, you've seen both, right? This and, film, yes, go on. is a bit of a spoiler. Is complete and utter shit, right? It's a bit of a spoiler, isn't it? Really bad. It is a film that is like, it's, it's just like watching a small piece of tissue just floating in the wind. There's absolutely no substance to it. Um, so the the premise is that, well, actually, I'm not even going to go into the whole premise. I'm just going to break down the list of things I made that 
irritated me about the film. For a start, it's really bright and it just feels like a TV movie. Um, the whole thing is just really bright. And oh, bear in mind, I've not seen the original, but I know that they're here and I know that the alien, the aliens, oh, sorry, aliens, ghosts trying to come into our world. That's all you need to know. Mm. Sam Rockwell was a really odd choice for this because Moon was what, 2009? This is six years later. And it's this is a really light, throwaway, nothing, direct mm. teen horror. There's no need for him to be in it. Yeah. Um, he plays obviously the father of the family. The parents are in this house that is in this neighborhood that is apparently this just really nice American suburbia. And they turn up and they kind of make out that they're making do, and everyone around them just just sort of has a go at them that it's like a bit of a shitty neighborhood, and you know the has has a dig at them for being poor. But it just looks really sort of postcard perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, they what really irritated me about this film within the first 10 minutes was when the parent the kids go to bed there's three kids uh two two daughters and a, and a boy a really screechy irritating boy mm-hmm. um who's got one of those faces that you know he's just he looks exactly like he's going to look when he's 50 just irritating um he the, the, they're constantly talking about these financial difficulties which is why they've had to move to this house which is massive and fine anyway and they could the entire film and their financial situation could literally be alleviated by having a single conversation. Um, so they're brassic, completely and utterly brassic, to the point the mother's like, oh, turkey nuggets for dinner. And there's about eight on a tray for like five of them. And you think, that's poor, that is. Anyway, <laughs> she, um, no sauce though, no sauce, just put water on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so the uh, I've, I've mushed up some toilet paper so we can return this mayonnaise. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just breathe heavily on them to give them a bit um, of yeah. flavour. <laughs> frozen turkey nuggets that mothers breathed on. Um, have we got any turkey emotions left, mum? No, no. So, um, yeah. So. These financial difficulties, right? Sam Rockwell's talking to the wife in in, in the bedroom, out of earshot of the kids, and he th- she's saying, "Look, I the situation is that the mother's not working because she's an author and she's trying to write a book, and Sam Rockwell is unwilling to let her work even though she wants to because he's like, no, you need to write a book. It's going to be a big one. You need to write a book." And then she's saying to him, "Look, stop looking for jobs that are exactly the same or more." pay than your previous job just find anything to like help us through and he's like no no and you think well that's stupid isn't it because not only uh, is like is she willing to go out and get a job but you're like refusing to get a job unless it's exactly the same as your old job which obviously you you've been fired from because you weren't very good at it Mm. so it's like a self-creating financial whirlpool um just because they're just really irresponsible adults so that irritated me um and yeah, the son's irritating, and he's like quite a focal point of the film, which is a problem. Jared Harris rocks up as mm. someone who yeah. is like a an expert, and he just looks like Charlie Brooker's older brother, which was enjoyable yeah. to a point. He's putting on Irish accent. I'm not. I'm, not, I'm so ropey. I wasn't even sure if he actually was Irish or not. Um, the film is just flat. It feels like it never gets going. I, I like it was when it finished. If someone had told me. Oh, that's a forty-five minute episode of a TV anthology from the nineties. I would have just believed them, because it's like it's like you watch this film and just they're in this house, nothing happens, and and of course the whole thing about the house being built on 
on a like a, a graveyard and the body's still being there and that's what's causing all the problems graveyards are massive but the whole pro- problem seems to be centered under this one house the whole film was kind of really setty and closed off as well because we never see any neighbors or anything just this one house and this one family and then once you're watching this like boring flat brightly lit not interesting not funny not believable not scary horror film and then what happens is in the latter half of the film they call in these paranormal experts and the house just gets filled up with so many people with nothing to do so (laughs) in the house by the end of the film you've got two parents three kids and four paranormal experts all just bickering so what it boils down to right the end of the film the last 20 minutes this big set piece where they go into this other realm which is just really badly shown anyway you've got one person going into the dark realm to find the daughter and then the rest of them eight however many left either shout into a wardrobe or shout at a stain on the ceiling and that's just what they do for 20 minutes to the end of the film um and then when it does end the the sort of the 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 coda irritated me as well because um it shows them going to another house and the woman shows them round and it's a similar set of the previous house with like a tree outside and it looks the same Mm -hmm. and then when when she turns around they're gone and they're laughing driving away thinking like oh we're not moving there again we're not moving to another house like that and i just thought oh shut up what you didn't look at the pictures on the peter allen website did you you just <laughs> blindly drove up to a house you were going to pay for <laughs> oh it's just irritating so um yeah it just felt really really cheap and tacky and tv-ish and um yeah it felt like it felt a lot like they were taking this uh kind of classic brand and just trying to refit it into a modern style of like cheapo horror i mean it's not even it's not even bloomhouse quality it's it's platinum dunes kind of quality isn't it in fact it's probably produced by platinum dunes i would have thought i can't i was trying to work out well i'll I'll tell you now because i've got it up on wikipedia here but uh it is was it production companies i don't know there's about forty thousand production companies fox 2000s mgm ghost house pictures tsg vertigo it's like this just they all put in a tenner each there's a there's a 10 minute long extended version of this as well it it's the budget was 35 million i don't know where that money went and the box office was 95 million but i described it earlier on as a teen horror but i'm not sure who this is aimed at because it's just it fails on every possible level um there was one one sequence the one sequence that was mildly frightening was when the sun is it was just so irritatingly full of cowardice all the time um he a load of clowns fall down the chimney in his room these clown dolls and Mm. it's quite cool because he's obviously scared of everything in this film and when he looks at them whenever the camera cuts to them they're not just in a different place and they're like still looking at him whenever the camera cuts them you know from his viewpoint of looking at them you just catch them stopping moving so they kind of collapse and it's quite that's quite creepy but of course i'm pretty sure that was just by accident because the rest of the film is so bad and ramshackle (laughs) um you should watch the original if you haven't seen it it can't be worse than that. And and I was intrigued. No, it's not. Because I, I thought it, this film was so flat and bland and basic. I thought... That was my... Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And it, and that was the most disappointing part for me, apart from Sam Rockwell not making it amazing, because he usually does. But, um, but the original, it has its faults, but it's very atmospheric. And it, it definitely has a sense of... It, it doesn't feel monotone in the same way that 
the modern version seems it it feels really fleshed out and it's really beautifully made allegedly by tobe hooper though it looks and feels like a um like a steven spielberg film and the rumor is that he was just on set every day <laughs> tweaking everything so but it, yeah so it looks and feels really cinematic and stuff and it's got some really nice quiet moments in it and some really quite creepy moments but it's worth a watch the original it's definitely got it's got atmosphere a lot of atmosphere i will watch it i will i did plan to watch it because i know Faye likes it so um, but you've got to pay for it so obviously we'll see how well the sponsorship does this week <laughs> all right um oh, we better hasten haven't we um i can bang through these beverly hills two and three pretty quick that sounds nice. quite disparaging of beverly hills Cop two because it's not that bad but um so anyway, in Beverly Hills Cop 2, the cops are investigating, the Beverly Hills cops are investigating the alphabet crimes. Um, police chief is gunned down. Um, and so Foley, Eddie Murphy, heads to LA again to help investigate. The nuances of the plot are pretty much irrelevant because just, it's just excuses for more cop banter scenes and for Murphy to try out some new accents on unsuspecting crooks. Uh, this one was made in 1987 and it was quite glossily directed by Tony Scott. Every skyline in this movie looks like it's viewed through aviator sunglasses. Um, it's, uh, well, I mean, just some of the names, some of the names, Nielsen, Proknov, Stockwell. <laughs> I mean, they, these are names to join the old gang and and on top of that you get an expanded role for paul riser this time who somehow manages to turn a detroit cop into a smug besuited yuppie somehow don't know anyway just because it's paul riser i guess there's a few cameos too hugh hefner chris rock gilbert gottfried you'll know him when i know him i know that man irritating comedian so anyway, basic elements are still there. Uh, Axel Foley drives around with synth pop on the soundtrack, <laughs> laughing at L.A. opulence. He still blunders into situations and puts on a big performance to get his results. Still operates entirely on hunches, really. And he's still a hustler. Um, and it covers most of the same beats as the original. So Taggart, the older cop, is still exasperated. And they go to another strip club. There are police, new police chiefs to be outraged, uh, but then suddenly come around naturally. So it's familiar elements in a slightly different story, really. Um, the problem is, is really the fact that Axel Foley is now friends with um, Tagger and the other cop, Billy, the one played by George Reinhold. The fact that he's now friends with them removes some of the dramatic interest from the original because of course back then it was like they were learning to trust him if you see what I mean but now they're just mates so it's not quite as interesting and also what is lacking here is there's no personal conflict really between Axel Foley and the bad guys because obviously in the original his friend got murdered this time it's Ronnie Cox being shot but not murdered um and although they kind of try his, and his name is like detective bogomil as well Bogomil, yes <laughs> they kind of try they shoehorn in this ridiculous scene where where bogomil calls axel foley and like they seem like they're old mates 
but it's purely there so that there's some personal stake in it it's like they would not have this chummy conversation um they hated each other last time anyway um so again there isn't really that personal conflict there either so it's a bit more like a just a regular cop thriller really and the, tony scott does not have quite the lightness of touch that martin breast has and he when it comes to the comedy he tends to choose the shoutiest take each time some of the hustles are quite amusing and inventive still but not quite as funny i did like the armed robber at the racetrack because that reminded me of an early kubrick film called the killing so that was nice uh it's not much worse than the original it's more of a continuation it at least has essentially the same tone really it's got better action and a bit more style but it's just not quite as funny the tonal balance isn't quite there and the bad guys aren't as interesting but it's it's worth a watch i think um i i can do i've got two left and i know you've got one uh, i can do my two in like three or four minutes so shall i just smash through them and then we'll end yeah, with their little cut three smash through these so, three so the, the the other one, the one I've got, I watched Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson and Goldie Horn, and I've never seen this film before. So this is like 1990. Apparently, Kurt Russell was supposed to be in this, and just really quickly, right? This was apparently like pretty badly received when it was released, but it's mm. actually just quite a fun kind of buddy road trip thing. Yeah. Um, it's a few problems with it, and it's a bit dated, but um, the premise is basically that. Um, Mel Gibson's character is in witness protection because of something he did a few years ago when he's got a, a few different identities. Goldie Horn's an old girlfriend. Um, she stumbles upon him at a petrol station where he's putting on an unconvincing Texan accent. And she says, aren't you like Mel Gibson? And he's like, no. Nah. And then she says, you are the one. He says, yeah, I am. Yeah. So then they get together and that's not the script verbatim, by the way, they get together. And as they're being, as his sort of past catches up with him, they, reconnect and go on this road trip through which they basically work their way back through his previous identities uh, using them as sort of stop-offs to get further information. One sequence where I thought mm, would that happen today was where they go back and he was assigned an identity as a gay hairdresser in a salon and okay. he, he talks in this like lispy camp voice and as they're sort of driving off from it she says Oh, so that's what you were doing then, huh? And he's like, oh, hey, you know, you don't get to choose which identities get assigned to you. But I'm pretty sure that if in witness, if I was in witness protection and they said, you're going to have to be a gay man who like has sex with men, unfortunately, I'd be like, but can't I just, can I just have a different name and just be moved somewhere else and just, just talk <laughs> in my normal accent? Uh, so yeah, that's a bit bizarre, but it's okay. Um, there's a really nice ending sequence in a zoo with like lots of animals. It's quite a cool set piece. And obviously... The people chasing them are Bill Duke and David Carradine, who God. Are, are men who have very defined characters, right? Bill Duke is quiet and threatening, and David Carradine is just kind of this sort of quirky, offbeat old man, effectively. But they just portrayed as these kind of slightly blundering thugs, which is a bit boring. But mm -hmm. it's a totally average, fine, you know, sort of silly buddy movie. The other film I watched was Desperate Hours which is a remake of a 1955 film by William Wyler. Um, this, it says it's a neo-noir film. It's not. It's just a standard sort of basic thriller starring Mickey Rourke and Anthony Hopkins. It's directed mm. by Michael Cimino, who did Heaven's Gate. And it's, effect it's effectively... Mickey Rourke is a, 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 a murderer who escapes prison uh, and 
takes refuge in this house uh, owned by Anthony Hopkins and Mimi Rogers, who are estranged, but I have a child, so they sort of share custody. And he is waiting in this house until his lawyer comes to pick him up. She's a she's a woman, obviously, and they escape together. Now the whole thing is nonsense anyway, because the his lawyer, because she's fallen in love with him, has completely thrown her life into like his successful life and beautiful home into disarray to be with this this murderer. And they have no plan. Like she's driving to this house, just for some reason, like tens of hours away, even though we don't really see his journey to this house, why he would choose a house in this area so far away. If he's just going to meet her and drive off somewhere else anyway, is bizarre. But um, yeah, so he's in this house and it's him and his interactions with the family and the children, one played by Shawnee Smith. And uh, he's got two associates played by Elias Coteus with here and David Morse. Good playing a stupid thug, unbelievably. Um, <sighs> And, and and then it's just the police sort of catching up with where he is and, and a standoff, blah, 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 blah. Boring, boring, boring. I can sum up how stupid this film is by a single scene, right? Um, there's a scene where... Oh, but the house is awful as well, by the way. They're supposed to be, like, really rich and opulent. It's just this mm. really busy house filled with lots of, like, floral and gold things. It's dreadful. <sighs> but... There's a scene where David Morse plays someone who's kind of a little bit mentally unbalanced and he's a bit sort of simple-minded. And Mickey Rock says, look, if you want to go, just go. Just get rid of this body because he's, he's shot someone. And David Morse is like, really? And you think he's just going to shoot him in the back, but no, he lets him go. So David Morse takes this body and he's so thankful to be out of this like escalating situation, gets in a car, drives off somewhere, and the police are nowhere in sight, right? They don't know where they are at this point. And the film is so badly edited that he turns up at this really, um, this really deserted street, this this dusty desert highway, gets out, drags the body down a bank in into like a sort of waist high pond, mm. and he he just dumps the body, weights it down with rocks, and then starts to wade out of the pond. Right, it cuts to the police, and it says, "Oh, we've just had a report." of a body being dumped in a in a pot in a pond and it cuts back and by the time david morse has walked out of the pond up the hill back to his car the police are bearing down on him like a full swat team and then he turns around runs back down to the pond where there are literally just snipers set up and the two people who were just on the phone arrived shouting at him through a megaphone to put his gun down and i'm it's like what that that entire thing took place over less than a minute um oh it's God. bewildering it's just and by the end of it you can tell they're like right let's just get to the end boom 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 and then there's a crap ending it's such a bizarrely boring film when was everyone in 1990 okay long after coming as hey day but yes that's yeah oh my god so <laughs> yeah that sounds really really poor although good yeah. good cast yeah, it is funny to watch Anthony Hopkins get shot quite early on, and it is funny to watch him like. Yeah, that's it. It would have been just before Silence of the Lambs, I suppose. So he really wasn't a big star before that. No, I mean Anthony Hopkins married to Mimi Rogers. Would she fancy him? Hard to say, <laughs> but but it's funny. It is funny how he gets shot in the shoulder quite early on, and. As the film goes on, he is looking peaky, and by the end of it, his eyes are rolling back in his head, and he's so close to death. It's amusing. Um, yeah, so that's that. Watch it if you want to watch Anthony Hopkins sweating. Desperate hours. Yeah, is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Is it Amazon Prime? I assume. 
It's bizarre. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is amazing. You would know With, that. Also on Prime, Beverly Hills Cop 3, which was made in 1994, and it flopped, obviously. Uh, so in this one is a bit of a return to the personal stakes of the original. This An ambush goes wrong, and Foley's chief of police is shot dead. Um, so at least it's got a personal edge on it. But that's the only good thing I've got to say about this film. It's mostly set in a theme park in L.A., obviously. Um, because, of course, he has to go back to L.A. And there are various set pieces based around the rides. Uh, and basically, Axel Foley, Eddie Murphy, is trying to prove that the boss of the theme park is a criminal overlord. Shoo, yeah. This is directed by John Landis. So it's far more comedy focused. Um, and like there's a car chase near the start, for example, where Foley, just parts of his car are just falling off around him in a kind of hilarious way. And there's a funeral sequence where there's this really over the top singer. Um, and it's done kind of a bit like something out coming to America. Um, anyway, so it's obviously quite, it's clearly meant to be a comedy, but apparently Eddie Murphy saw it quite differently and he found the whole thing very depressing. And you can see his lack of energy in this film is depressing in itself. There's just the script is just junk. It's I think the problem is, is that of the series, this is the least mature script combined with the most mature Axel Foley. So whereas before it was. Axel Foley being silly in serious situations. Now it's Axel Foley being serious in silly situations. And that dynamic isn't as funny. Uh, there's no synth pop anymore. It's been replaced by edgy, urban, funky beats. It's not really a um, film then, is it? If there's no synth pop. And, and there's this awful repeated orchestral version of Harold Fultemeyer's theme. Axel F theme, um, which sounds like something from an old Western movie. It's terrible. Uh, it's a, the action is a real step down from Tony Scott's film. It's very static. The shootouts look like something out of Naked Gun. There's no style, and there's certainly none of the gritty edge that the first two had. Um, obviously, the finale is a big shootout in the theme park, and it, it quite uncomfortably blends this wacky slapstick with extreme violence, like people getting burned alive and stuff. It's weird. Um, like, at the, at the end, I don't care about spoiling it because it doesn't deserve... <laughs> it doesn't deserve secrecy. At the end... It doesn't deserve your eyes. <laughs> Judge Reinhold, so they've had this big shootout. Judge Reinhold's character emerges, right? Um, he is bathed in blood. He's clearly just bleeding to death. So he comes out, stumbles out, collapses. And Axel Foley and Billy's new partner are sitting there and they just laugh and joke about him needing medical attention. It's weird and not in keeping with, with what... It, a series which had essentially been grounded up to this point, if you see what I mean. You know, mm. these people could die and it wasn't just a joke. Uh, there's a half-assed attempt at romance subplot with Teresa Randall, but she's just wasted. And it's just terrible, low-grade entertainment, really. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so then, we know your film of the week. Is... They're making a fourth yes. film, aren't they? 
I the fourth I don't think I mean Eddie Murphy he didn't even want to make a third one I I think he I think he said on record like literally I, no one wants to see that and he's bang on no one does want to see that really apart like from an me. old <laughs> I'd watch it, I'd watch it. Okay. <laughs> um yeah I don't know maybe they are maybe they will so your movie of the week is Cop Car, and mine is, as much as I love American Ninja 2, um, I'm going to go with Day of the Panther, um, an Australian martial arts from from 88, because I loved it. And I and I genuinely, like, really... When I found out there was a sequel on Prime, I was like, yes! Because I loved it, and I'm going to watch back to it. Back as well, so you know it's going to maintain the quality. Um, okay, yeah, nice. That's wow. it. The, the one last thing I have to say to you is a challenge I pose you. And that is for next week's Arkin's Da, you have to get from Sam Rockwell to Brian Brown. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you for another thrilling episode of Solid Gold. I'm still amused at the potential amusement line. I do like that. <laughs> what a, such a such a damning statement. <laughs> Potential amusing. So, yeah, implicit in that is not amusing. Um, right. <laughs> cool. Um, well, I'll have to love you and leave you. Yeah, um, remain beautiful, and I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye, my dove. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>